remain standing for the reading of the uh, passages, the passage here for the sermon. It starts in John chapter 6, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, it is, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I, came, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all be, uh, they all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week we left off from verse 40. This is the second part of probably a three-part sermon on the bread of life. And so next week um, we will probably conclude that particular section and probably one of the weirdest sections about eating flesh and drinking blood. And so we'll have to do some work there as we make our way through this. So we left off of verse 40. So we'll start today in verse 41. And in verse 41, it appears that we have a change of audience here. Um, it is a possible change of location. It's not very uh, evident uh, in the narrative itself, but there are some cues here to tell us that there are some changes uh, of location and a different audience uh, starting possibly here in verse 41. The people, as we've been reading, found Jesus in Capernaum. And it, appear, it appears that they were out in the open air when they found Jesus, and that's when they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? So all the, the people were together, and Jesus was addressing the crowd. And so much of his teaching there at the beginning took place outside addressing this crowd. But in John chapter 6, verse 59, John tells us that Jesus said these things, what, the things that we are looking at now, said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So it appears they were, they were outside, and now they are inside in the synagogue. So somewhere between verse 25 and verse 59, there was a transition from Jesus outside addressing the crowd to Jesus coming inside in the synagogue and addressing the Jews there. So verse 41 may be a, a cue to this transition. Look at the verse, uh, a few words there in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Now, if you're following along several months ago, I mentioned that when John mentions the Jews, he is specifically talking about, in most cases, he's talking about the religious leaders. And if we follow in this section, you'll see that John talks about the crowd and now he's specifically talking about the Jews. So here, Jesus is uh, speaking to and addressing what probably is not any longer the crowd, but the religious leaders in the synagogue. And it appears that these Jews, 
these religious leaders probably were outside and heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. Either that or some of the crowd told them what Jesus had said. And so they um, had a problem with what Jesus was saying here. And so, um, it, uh, so, so we move uh, from uh, Jesus speaking to the crowd to the religious leaders in the synagogue. Now we mentioned that this whole section appears to echo the Exodus. If you've been following along, we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. It was kind of like the new Moses giving bread to the people out in the wilderness. Jesus walking on water, which paralleled the parting of the Red Sea. There was a miracle of water there. And Jesus speaking then about the manna in the wilderness and about Moses. So Jesus even ties his teaching into that whole idea of the Exodus. Now it seems from this very first few uh, words in verse 41 that the Jewish nature had not changed in 1500 years. Why? Because it says the Jews grumbled. The Jews were grumbling, right? Now, the, so the, the religious leaders were grumbling against Jesus. And it's interesting to note that the same word used here for grumbling is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It's the same word used in Exodus when the people grumbled against Moses. And so we still have this Exodus theme. So just like the people in the wilderness were grumbling, now they're grumbling against Jesus, the new Moses, right? Now in Exodus 16.2, it says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then in verse 8 and 9 of Exodus 16, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you uh, in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So up above here it says, you're grumbling against, they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but Moses turns around and says, you're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Now what happens next is not fun for Israel because of their grumbling, right? So Jesus is dealing with Jewish grumblers right here, 1,500 years after Moses was dealing with Jewish grumblers, Israel, in the wilderness. Now another term for grumblers are murmurers or complainers. So they were complaining and murmuring against Moses. Remember some of the things they said? Man, you brought us out in the wilderness to starve to death and die. We were better back as slaves in Egypt eating good, rich food. We were better back then under slavery. And uh, so they were complaining, but it, it was not against them. It was against the Lord. It was the Lord's plan to free them from slavery. The reason they were out in the wilderness because the Lord brought them out. Right? It was not just Moses. It was the Lord's plan to feed them manna from heaven. Moses and Aaron were merely servants of the Lord. And they grumbled then, not against Moses and Aaron, but the Lord. So one thing is very clear. It should be very clear to us from the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul tells us that God wrote all those things in the Old Testament 
uh, for our benefit so that we would learn from it. Um, but also in the New Testament, one thing we know for sure, the Lord does not like grumblers. He does not like it. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, or some translations, complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. I mean, if God is sovereign, then all the situations we find ourselves in are there because they have, been, they have come through God's sovereign hand. Even things that are difficult and hard, God has allowed those things. And we probably need to learn to face those things and go through those things without grumbling or complaining about that because ultimately God is on the throne and he's in control of all things right so we should learn a lesson here now in verse 41 just as the Jews in the wilderness they were grumbling against the Lord they they were grumbling here in verse 41 against Jesus and they grumbled because he said I am the bread that came down from heaven now it's not because jesus said he was the bread now they're going to be offended at that here next week we'll see that they'll get really offended when he when he literally fleshes that out a little bit right uh they they were particularly offended here when jesus claimed that he came down from heaven they believed that they knew his origin. They, they knew where he came from. And to, in their mind, it was not from heaven. Look at verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know his origin. We know his parents. He was born like the rest of us. How, do we, how does he say he's coming down from heaven? Now, obviously... The Galilean region was not that big of a region. A lot of people knew each other, I guess. So they, the, the, those from Capernaum uh, probably knew uh, Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, or maybe na they had moved there, or maybe they did business there. But for whatever reason, they knew Mary and Joseph. Now, their point is quite clear. We know his parents. How could he possibly say, I came down from heaven? Now, along with that, the underlying uh, idea behind that is they understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God. If he is in heaven and he came down from heaven, well, God is in heaven. And so he's claiming some kind of equality with God. And so the Jews clearly understood his meaning, and they didn't believe him. That was the problem, their unbelief. They murmured, and they were murmuring because of their unbelief unbelief and they showed themselves to be just like their forefathers now look at verse 43 and 44 jesus answered them said do not grumble among yourselves and then he doubles down on what he said what we looked at last week right and then he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day and so Jesus restates what he said in verse 37. What, what did he say in 37? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So here he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's break this down a bit. Notice the first two words there. No one. That pretty well covers the scope of it, doesn't it? Nobody. No one on this planet can come to me. Now notice the word can, the third word. No one can. That is a word that speaks of ability, right? Can. In this case, with the negative, no one, it speaks of inability. No one can. No one has the ability to come. And we looked at that last week. It's because of uh, our bondage to sin. It's because of the depravity of our heart that we are enemies of God. We are born haters of God. And so we're not going to... uh, come to God, the very person, the very one that we hate and that we want to hide from. So, no one has the ability to come to me. So, no human being is capable of coming to Christ on their own effort. That's the clear meaning here that Jesus is saying. No one can come to me on their own effort. But if Jesus was sent to die on the cross and then the Father left salvation up to the choice of mankind whether to come to Christ or not, the answer to this and what God knows and what we should know is if God left salvation up to the choice of man, no one would come to him. None. Not one. That's what Paul makes that point in Romans 3, right, from the the Scripture. No one seeks after God. No one. No one is righteous, right? And so God is not going to send His Son to die and no one come. That's why God does that extra work of grace and mercy, right? So sinners are unable to come to Christ on their own. Now, notice he says, no one can come, but here's a great little word there, unless. (laughs) Notice it says unless. It, It reminds me of Ephesians, doesn't it? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then down there in verse, I think it's verse 4, verse 4 or 5. You were dead, but God has made you alive right and that is what jesus is basically saying here right no one can come to me unless unless the father who sent me draws him now some of the biggest debates in christian history have been over the sovereignty of god and the free will of man and those debates are still raging on today And there are people in this town that are fighting over this issue and churches splitting over this issue of the the issue of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. And um, nobody is saying that uh, man is a robot and is forced to do, uh, forced to sin. God is not forcing men to sin. Men freely sin because that's what they desire to do. The problem is, is they have no desire for righteousness. 
They have no desire to do good. It's a, it's a moral fallenness, right? So, um, the sovereignty of God uh, brings about salvation. And, but there are those who want to deny God's sovereignty and salvation and uplift the free will of man. It's by man's free choice that they believe. Now, there are some famous debates throughout history. Augustine and Pelagius uh, were arguing over this issue. Martin Luther uh, versus Erasmus. And if you want to read that argument, you read Bondage of the Will. Luther said that was one of his great, greatest works. That and the smaller children's catechism, I believe. He, he said those two. You can burn the rest of it. Just leave those two. Um, and then there's the argument between the Calvinists and the Arminians, right? Which still continues on today. In fact, all three of these famous debates are still raging on today. I thought just for kicks that I would read some commentaries by Arminians to see what they said about this verse. That was a very interesting thing. I w in fact, I want to do more reading on it to see what they say about this. The first one I came to, what was interesting is I kept flipping around and they just skipped over it. It's like, nothing to see here. We're moving on. <laughs> they just ignored it. One tried to downplay the Calvin-Arminian debate by saying, you know, yeah, there's, there's, they're both right. What? I mean, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't just do that, right? You've got to deal with it. And so they're just kind of smoothing it over. Now, another, and this is a common thing. Uh, this is a common way to, um, to deal with this. I think this is the way Erasmus dealt with this verse when he was being pressed by Luther. And that is to suggest that being drawn by the Father was merely being coaxed, like honey to a flies, you know, or a, or a carrot on the stick to get a, a mule to get up and start, you know, here's a, here's a carrot and get up and being coaxed that way. Uh, so the Father, according to this view, the drawing, the Father is merely, merely enticing people, you know, enticing them to to come please come you know it's so good here the grass is greener or, or something i don't know but the lord is coaxing or wooing people to come to christ and apparently uh, in this particular idea apparently god woos everyone he, he woos everyone just to be fair but only those who don't resist God's wooing and comes to Christ by their own free will will be saved. That's what they do with this verse. So God woos everyone, and then only those who decide for Christ will ultimately be saved. But doesn't that just completely turn what Jesus just said upside down? No one is able, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And the ones that the Father draws, I will raise them up on the last day. <laughs> Everyone the Father draw, draws will be saved, is basically what he's saying, and they will be raised up. So, uh, and another way, I guess, the Arminians will try to get around this obvious monergism, that is, one working, God working for salvation. So salvation is monergistic, meaning only God works 
for our salvation. Salvation is not a cooperation between me and God. God does his part, I do my part, and when we all do our part, you know, we can congratulate God and ourselves for being in heaven because we were smart enough or good enough to recognize a great offer when we heard it. Um, but another way that Armenians tried to get out of this monergistic passages like these, and there's more of them, there's more of them coming. And in fact, when we get to uh, John 17 or John 10, we're going to see this again. This is not an isolated text. But the way that they kind of get out of this is they appeal to what they call provenient grace. That is, if the sinner makes the slightest move toward God, you know, it's kind of like, okay, they're chained to the wall, but they kind of try to reach out to God. And when they, when they reach out to God, then God will supercharge it and allow them to come all the way to faith in Him. Provenient grace. It's... It's kind of like uh, the, some said, you know, salvation is 99.9% God and 1% man. And most of those who say that, they are b- trusting in this provenient grace. We do the 1% and then God takes the 99.9 and the rest of it. But it's still a cooperation um, given by the sinner and the sinner comes to God he must start the whole process with at least moving toward God in some way on his own. Now, apart from the fact that provenient grace is not found in the Bible, which is, which is probably a good reason to dismiss it, um, the Armenians and semi-Pelagians cannot get away from the fact that this drawing here in this passage is selective. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And in this passage, no one can come to me unless the Father draw them. That's the, the whole point of the Arminian debate. The whole point of this is the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, the Arminians say that a sinner can come by their own free will. Jesus here says no one can. No one can unless... The Father draws him. So if I were an Armenian, I'd probably skip over this passage too and just go, go on. So that everyone that the Father draws will come. And again, some of the argument is that the Father draws everyone, only a few will come. That's not what Jesus said. Everyone that the Father draws will come, and I will raise them up. So they're going through these contortions to defend a doctrine that you will not find in Scripture, and that is that God limits His sovereignty for the free will of man. You'll never see that anywhere in Scripture. But that's the basis of their argument. And the problem is, and I think Martin Luther nailed it in the book, and you should read the book if you're struggling with this, The Bondage of the Will. The problem here is, and you don't even have to read Luther, just read Paul. The problem is our will is not free. It is in bondage to sin. Mankind, we can still make choices, and we are still responsible for the choices that we make, but our choices are always tainted by sin because we're in bondage to it. The will is not free. We are a slave to sin. This is the language of Scripture, bondage and slavery. This is the language that Paul uses concerning uh, 
uh, our sin. And so to believe that mankind's will is somewhat neutral, is free, and can choose good or bad, or God or the devil, is untrue, and it is not biblical. Um, and so the Arminians and semi-Pelagians and Pelagians mistakenly believe that man has a greater dignity is more secure and the universe is more just if mankind comes to Christ by their own free will. Uh, of course, they ignore Romans 9 when, when uh, Paul takes the position of one of these people and says, uh, then how can God find fault? And he says, who are you, O man, to question God? It's really above our pay grade it really is but again i think the the, uh, the the what we need to understand is that god does not have to have show mercy or grace to anyone we freely sin against god we do it with what the old testament called a high hand we know that we're doing it and so we're responsible for that so god doesn't have to save anyone and so the fact that he saves anyone at all is a miracle in itself, right? There's a lot more to be said about this. Can't be covered in one sermon, right? So if you have questions, uh, please uh, talk to me and, or others later about that and work through it. Everybody has to work through this. And when I first heard about it, it made me really mad. I think I even threw a book. But now it has become one of the dearest doctrines in my life. And it will make your worship. When you find out that you didn't choose God, He chose you, that will make your worship deep. Because <laughs> He didn't have to. He didn't have to write your name before the foundation of the world, but He did. And that will deepen your thanksgiving and your worship to God when you grab a hold of that. Otherwise, God, if we go around thinking that, hey, aren't I great because I chose, I chose God, I chose Christ, aren't I great, aren't I something, that leaves our pride intact in our hearts. And when we get the gospel, it humbles us and eliminates our pride before God. There's no boasting before God when we understand this. Now, Martin Luther knew that if it, were, if it were up to his free will, he would be in trouble, right? You need to understand this. If God left it up to our free will, we would be in trouble. We could not be secure. This is what Luther said. I frankly confess that for myself, even if I could be, I should not want, not want free will to be given me nor anything to be left in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation, not merely because in face of so many dangers and adversaries and adversities and assaults of devils, I could not stand my ground and hold fast my free will, for one devil is stronger than all men. So if it was up to your free will, just one the devil can come along and just totally put you on a different path, disrupt you, and you would lose your salvation. So, so Luther is saying, I'm glad it's not in my, my hands. He says, but now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of His, 
and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and that he is also great and powerful, so that no devil or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. Now, let's take a closer look at this word draw because that seems to be the word that that hinges between the two debates one draw oh it's a wooing or coaxing let's take a look at this word draw the word literally if you look up the english etymology of the word draw uh, i was i was doing that a little bit yesterday as i was looking up the uh the, the Greek lexicon, but I also saw the English on this. The word draw here in the English etymology means to drag. That's kind of where it came from. Now, over time, words morph. And so draw, uh, in now in the English language, could mean kind of woo or, or kind of you know, coax or whatever. Uh, so just because that's the original meaning, course if you're looking at the king james or an earlier translation that's probably what they were meaning by this the word has softened over time but in the greek lexicon it also means to pull or to drag actually probably a better word to use now in the english translation would be the word compel rather than draw compel unless the father compel them now, R.C. Sproul suggested that the English translators purposely used the softer word draw. This is according to Sproul because they just didn't like the connotation of using that stronger word compel. I wish they would have used that word. It would probably end a lot of our debates. So Sproul says this, Jesus simply wasn't saying no one will come to me unless the Father woos them to me. No, his meaning was much stronger. He used the same Greek word that is used in the book of Acts when Paul was seized and dragged out of the temple at Jerusalem. And we can be sure those angry Jews did not try to woo Paul to come with them. He was drugged out, you know, he was dragged so, um, we need to, to really be firm on what that word means. Now, some of the Arminians make a good point here. They point to John chapter 12, verse 32. Let's think about this one. John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's often used as a counter verse, right? I will draw all people to myself. But you remember that um, one, like Greg Kogel says, don't read a Bible verse. What he means by that is don't read a verse out of its context. Anybody can make the Bible say anything they want if they just lift one verse off of it read it out of the context of the verse. And, and when we look at the context of John 12, the first part of John 12, what's happening? Gentiles are coming to the apostles and asking to see Jesus. The Gentiles were asking. They want to see Jesus. Well, Jesus turns and he's, he's teaching 
Um, and he turns to the Jews and he tells the Jews, when I am crucified, when I am lifted up, I will draw all, and that's really you have to supply all men, all people, all is listed there. All, I will draw all. And in this context, Jesus was meaning, I will not just draw the Jews, I will draw the Gentiles. I will draw the nations. I will draw all the peoples. I will draw Jews and Gentiles alike. That was in the context of the Jews wanting to see Jesus, or the Gentiles wanting to see Jesus. And then he says, after I'm crucified, I will draw Jews and Gentiles alike. So all here does not necessarily mean Every single person. In fact, that contradicts exactly what Jesus said here and in other places as well. So you can't have Bible verses contradicting each other. But in this case, you see the context that he in, he's including Jews and Gentiles. After his, uh, after his death on the cross, he will draw the nations to himself. Um, so Jesus affirms here that mankind has no ability to come to Christ on their own. And the only way that one can come to Christ is if the Father compels them to come. And everyone the Father compels to come will come, and he will lose none of them, and he will raise them up on the last day if you put those two verses together. That's exactly what he's saying. Uh, so this doctrine of election and predestination, the, all of the first-generation reformers believed this doctrine. There was no question about this. All of them believed it. And all of the Protestant confessions from the 16th century to the 17th century, all of the confessions of faith, the Protestant confessions of faith in the 16th and 17th centuries express man's inability uh, to be saved by his own free will. Let me give you two examples. Article 10 of the 39 Articles. Article 10 states this, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. He can't. Where did they get that? Jesus. Westminster Confession 9.3 says this, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So if you ask them, how are they saved? <laughs> the Father draws them. God does the work and makes them alive. They cannot do it themselves. Right? In other words, salvation is not up to the sinner. It is up to the Father. Which, by the way, is contrary to the belief of the majority of evangelicals today. Listen to them. And what they say the gospel is that God merely makes the offer of salvation through the gospel, but the sinner must, by their own free will and free choice, accept that offer from God. God, Jesus, in their mind, merely came to make salvation possible, and you, the sinner, must complete that salvation by your own choice for Christ. Sounds good. It's contrary to what Jesus just said here. 
right? And it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus teaches. It's amazing to me that it's still going, that people aren't reading their scriptures closely enough to get this. But here's the thing. It offends us to our very core. This doctrine offends us. And I think that's the reason why most evangelicals reject it, because it is offensive. In fact, it's going to be so offensive that there are going to be a lot of people walking away here because they were offended too at this. So how are we drawn? Well, look in verse 45. Verse 45 says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Jesus is explaining what it means to be drawn. What does it mean to be drawn from the Father? Well, what it means to be drawn is that they will be taught by God, that God teaches them. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 54, 13 here which, again, is describing how the Father is drawing sinners. They are taught by God. And Isaiah tells us who are taught by God. If you look at that Isaiah passage, 54, 54, 13, all of God's children are taught by God. That's what the Isaiah passage says. All of God's children are taught by God. So this helps us to understand that all does not always mean everyone in the world, right? Here, all means all of God's children. And all of God's children are taught by So we can say all the elect will come to him because all of the elect are taught by God. And what happens to those who are taught by God? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what it means to be drawn. Everyone who has heard and has learned from the Father comes to me. That's how God draws so drawing means hearing and learning from the Father. And so that gives us the idea that, that God opens the ears and the hearts of sinners so that they will believe. Now before we move on, I guess Jesus put this next verse in there for a reason so that we wouldn't get all these wacky stories throughout history about God coming down to someone personally to teach them or someone going up to God and being taught by God in heaven Jesus adds this to keep that from happening. Verse 46, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Uh, so so what, he's, what he's getting at here is that the way that the Father teaches us is not for him to come down and sit in the chair next to us, <laughs> like we would talk to him face to face, or, or that we would be transported into heaven and God speaks to us in heaven. No one sees the Father, and the only one person who's seen him is Christ, so uh, what, what Jesus is helping us to understand here is he doesn't mean being taught by the Father audibly, you know, like, like he's going to sit down with each one of us. But there is a way that the Father teaches us and speaks to us, right? In Jesus' day, the people could hear and learn from the Father by hearing the words of Jesus. Just listening to Jesus, they're listening to the Father, right? Jesus came to reveal the Father. But now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, in our day we learn and hear from the Father through His Word, through the Scripture. We learn, uh, sinners learn and hear from the Father when they hear the Gospel, when the Gospel is being preached and they learn 
about their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior and their call to believe in Christ. So, when the Word is taught and preached, we are hearing from the Father. So evidently, by that, you're hearing from the Father now as we look at His Word. You're being taught by the Father. Not that I'm the Father. He, remember, He uses donkeys to speak to people, so He can certainly use me. But it's the Word of God coming out from me to you. That is God's design and purpose in the preaching and the proclamation of the Word. So we learn from the Father through the teaching and preaching of the Word. That's why it's important for us Christians to have a conviction about just going to church, right? Because if we stay home, we don't hear from God. We don't worship God. We're not thankful to God in our worship, right? Um, and for someone to, to, to stay home, it means they're not really that thankful and they don't really believe that the preaching of the Word is hearing from God. If people out there really believe that the preaching of the Word was God speaking to them, there would be standing room only, not only in here, but in the other auditorium, in this whole church, and all the churches all around, right? Standing room only. The problem is that people in their natural state, in their sinfulness, don't want to hear from God. So they'd rather not come. Now, this reminds me, the word of the Lord that makes sinners alive, doesn't it remind you of Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones? What well, is Ezekiel 37? God chose Ezekiel. What do you see out there? Well, I see a valley full of bones, dry bones, right? I mean, what, what that means is dry bones means they're dead, dead. Not sort of dead. They're totally dead. They're bones. They're dried out, bleached in the sun. God says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Well, I don't know. You know, Lord. I, I don't know. And what does the Lord say? Prophesy to these bones. Speak my words to, this, to these bones. And call for the wind, you know, to fill them. And, 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 and Ezekiel prophesies, and all of a sudden, the the, the, the sinews, the, the tendons, the muscles, and then the skin, and all of it came together, and they stood up to be a mighty army. Now, how were those bones resurrected? By the word of the Lord. How are you resurrected from the dead? By the word of the Lord. And God creates a mighty army by His word. That's us. So God still speaks and still makes people alive today by His Word. Now notice Jesus affirms that no one has seen the Father except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the only one who has ever seen the Father. And why does He say that? Because He's a member of the Godhead. He is the Son of God. He is a member of the Trinity. He knows the Father. He's seen the Father. He's the only one. And He's the only one that has come down out of heaven to this earth. And that's why he can be trusted and we believe his word. He has come to reveal the Father. So now let's put it all together. Only those that the Father draws or compels to come will come to him. And the Father will draw his children and make them alive by his word 
and his children hear from him and learn from him, and he's not going to lose one of those children, and he will raise them up on the last day. That's beautiful. That's something that all Christians should love. Unfortunately, a good portion of them hate what I just said there. Now, so how do we know if we've been drawn or taught by the Father? That's a very important practical coming down to, to our own hearts. How do we know that we have been taught by the Father and drawn? Well, look in verse 47. Truly, truly, Jesus said, Again, amen, amen. So this is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He just qualified who was taught by the Father, the ones who believe. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been taught by the Father. You remember what, remember what Jesus said? Who, who do men say that I am? Oh, Elijah, John the Baptist, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to him? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. The Spirit of God revealed that to you. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you did not come to that on your own. The Father revealed that to you. The Father taught that to you. And he made you alive and gave you ears to hear and a mind to understand it. So how do you know if you've been taught? Well, do you believe? That's, that's how you know. That's the evidence. So the evidence that one has been drawn and taught by the Father is faith in Christ, belief in him. Arthur Pink wrote, believing is not the cause of, the, of a sinner obtaining divine life. Believing is not the cause of your salvation. Rather, it is the effect of it. The fact that a man believes is the evidence that he already has divine life within him. So faith is not the cause of salvation. The Father is the cause of our salvation. Faith in Christ is merely the evidence that one is alive in Christ. And then in verse 48, Jesus again says, I am the bread of life. There he is again, ego ami. Ego ami, I am the bread of life. Ego ami Takes us back to the Old Testament, Exodus. Moses said, whom shall I say sent me when I go to Pharaoh? And God says, tell them I am, ego a me. Tell them I am has sent you. And there Jesus is saying, ego a me. And this is, again, one of the seven sayings in John where Jesus prefaces what he is you know, linking himself to with ego a me. It's very clear. In fact, the first one is, I am the bread of life in 648. I am the light of the world, we'll see in 812. I am the door in 109. I am the good shepherd in John 1011. I am the resurrection and the life in 1125. I am the way, the truth, and the life in 146. And then in 151, he says, I am the vine. All prefacing claiming to be Yahweh Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh of the Old Testament it's very clear we're going to see that the Jews even pick up stones to, to stone him because they get what he's claiming so Jesus is not only the new Moses leading out a new exodus he is doing that it's a new exodus what is he doing rather than leading out under 
uh, slavery from Pharaoh, physical slavery, Jesus, as the new Moses, the greater Moses, is leading us out of the slavery to sin and death. And so, but not only is Jesus the new Moses, he's also Yahweh himself coming down to lead us out of slavery. Well, let's close this up in verse 49 and 50. He says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So they ate physical bread and it kept them alive physically, but they died. And so it is an inferior bread. In verse 50, he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So here's the difference. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the true bread of life that comes down of heaven. The manna in the wilderness was physical bread. They died physically. Jesus is the spiritual bread that comes down to heaven. They will die, maybe physically, but they won't die spiritually. So Jesus is using die here in two different ways. The one in the wilderness, the physical bread, die physically. The one who eats the bread, the spiritual bread of Jesus, they will not die spiritually. This reminds us of what Jesus said in John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he Though he die physically, yet shall he live. And then he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait a minute, you just said, though he may die, and now you said if you do that, you'll never die. Jesus is using die in two different ways. You may die physically. If you have faith in Christ, you, you will die physically, but you will never die spiritually forever. In fact, you will be raised physically from the dead, both body and soul and spirit right we're not just going to be floating around in clouds and as spirits all the rest of eternity jesus will reunite our bodies a resurrected body with our spirits and we will live forever in physical spiritual bodies that will never die and that's the hope that we have in christ so this speaks of the security of the believer everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die Notice he didn't say might not die. Jesus will never change his mind. There's where our security is. We might change our mind if it's our free will. That's why those who are consistent in their, in their beliefs, in our Arminian beliefs and semi-Pelagian, if you freely can choose Christ at some point in your life, you can freely unchoose him. That's why they teach you can lose your salvation. But Jesus, in this, in this passage, there's no way you can lose your salvation. I will raise them all up at the last. I will not lose any of them, Jesus is saying. And so, and in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, it says, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Meaning, if God has called you, if God has saved you, He will not revoke that salvation and that calling on your life. So next week, we'll get to this strange passage about eating flesh and drinking blood. So we need to do, we need to do some work there. But let me give you a very three or four very quick applications here. First one is, it really matters how we do ministry, isn't it? We cannot attempt to manipulate people into the kingdom. Our, our missions and evangelism needs to be gospel-centered and word-centered, not centered on a personality or that person's power of persuasion, right? 
That's why I'm not a big fan of revival meetings because usually you're looking for the guy that's very charismatic and outgoing and very persuasive that can get a lot of people down the aisle. You say, well, that's, that's a good thing. Well, let me ask you. Go look those people up in about a month and see if they're still following Christ. You can get people by their own um, flesh, in their own flesh, to make a decision for Christ, but it won't take them long that we'll make an undecision for Christ. They will decide and then decide against. It's fleeting. So we can't manipulate people into heaven. That doesn't work. We'll just, we just have a lot of people out there that think they're going to heaven that are not because they're not followers of Christ. So let's be word-centered and not man-centered in the way that we, the way that we do evangelism and, uh, and missions and ministry. Uh, this also should spur us on to pray more, shouldn't it? It's not our effort. It's not our you know, it's not by our works or our might. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. So, which means that we should pray more. If you have a, a child or a parent or a spouse or a neighbor that is lost and you have witnessed to them and you have shared and nothing, uh, listen, just pray. You can't persuade them. You can't save them, but God can, and that we need to pray. We, we, we are a nation under judgment. I mean, it's clear we're under judgment. But we need to be crying out to God for mercy. So, well, we deserve it. Yep, we do deserve it. But that's what mercy is, isn't it? God doesn't give us what we deserve. We need to be crying out for the nation. In fact, Ezekiel twenty-two thirty says, God says, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. God was looking for an intercessor, someone to pray for the nation, but he didn't find anybody. And so God destroyed them. And let that not be said of us. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for our city. Chickasha, the city of rebellion. Literally, that's what Chickasha means, right? Rebellion. The city of rebellion. Let's be the city of rebellion against the devil, right? Let's be our city of rebellion against sin. Uh, and so we need to pray for our city that God would move among our city and fill up all of our churches, right? So pray. I, I want to, I know I need to close, but I do need to say this, that Augustine was a very wayward young man. I mean, you know, he even had a child out of wedlock. His, mom, his mother, Monica, continued to pray and pray and pray, and then one time she went to see a bishop and said, you know, could you talk to my son? And he said, well, listen, he's not in the state that he wants to hear, but we need to continue to, to pray for him, and, and uh, he'll, he'll come around. And, um, and, and she was not satisfied with that because he was known to be able to help people and work through issues, and she was not satisfied with it. And she went on begging him and crying in tears that the bishop would talk to her son but then the bishop turned to her and said, Go thy way, and may God bless thee, for it is not possible that the child of so many tears should perish. And Monica took his words as if they had been a voice from heaven and cherished the hope which they held out to her. And you know the rest of the story. Augustine became one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Linked 
to his mother's prayers. This ought to get us to pray more for our people, for our family, and not give up. And uh, again, we may feel the frustration of sharing the gospel. She keeps sharing it anyway. It's not you that's doing it. It's God, right? And one last thing. If you are entrusting in Christ right now, you have been taught by the Father. What did Jesus say about us? You will never be lost. You will be raised up on the last day. And that is a promise from God. And he does not lie. And he never, he never reneges on his promises.